We are in the ninth chapter of Mark, a passage that's referred to as the transfiguration. We're going to ask two basic questions of this passage. Number one is, what did they see? Number two is, why does it matter? That's our outline. Let's jump right in. What is it that they saw? They saw three things. First, they saw clothes. They saw clothes that were turned radiant white. Actually, in the Greek, it's almost humorous. They refer to uh, clothes that are whiter than no launderer could launder them. Now, you probably know, you can intuit at least, that white uh, is an indicator of supernatural or heavenly beings. So, for instance, angels are all clothed in white. Uh, uh, when angels appear, they're dressed something like this, uh, wearing white, uh, shining. God himself is described as clothed in white. So our first indicator that something special is going on, Jesus clothed in white. Secondly, the crowd, the company he keeps. You can tell a lot by a person, by the company he keeps. Uh, and Moses, pardon me, Jesus is seen with both Moses and Elijah. Now from the, the biblical perspective, you could not do any better than that company. Here are two absolute pillars of the Old Testament. Uh, no more important people uh, than those two in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. So Jesus is not only seen in glowing white clothes, but he is seen in his prestigious company. Clothes, his company, finally, a cloud. A cloud overshadows the mountain and a voice from that cloud. Now, every once in a while, a little word study uh, reveals some interesting details, some interesting facts. In this word, a cloud overshadow, that phrase, a cloud that overshadowed, is very important. It shows up several times in the Bible. Each time is very significant. Let me just mention them. The first time we find this phrase, a cloud that overshadows, it's uh, back in the book of Exodus. In the Old Testament, people of God uh, have built what was called a tabernacle. It was a portable uh, sanctuary, a portable tent, and that uh, temple is, or that uh, portable temple, that uh, tabernacle is completed. And as soon as it is completed, this is recorded in Exodus the final chapter, we read that the glory of God overshadowed, same phrase that we found here in the transfiguration, the glory of God overshadowed, the idea not being that the, simply a shadow was cast on an object, but rather uh, a palpable presence filled the tabernacle. Interestingly, the same phrase happens again. This time, when the wandering Hebrews through the desert become a constituted nation of Israel, and they build not a tabernacle, portable, but a permanent temple. Same thing occurs. The temple, final stone is put in, and lo and behold, the glory of God fills, overshadows that, uh, that temple. Now, we don't find that phrase, the glory of God overshadow or overfilling uh, anything for quite some time, and the next time we find it very significant. It's actually in the New Testament, and, and, and a, a young lady is having a, a conversation with an angel. And the angel tells this young lady, you are going to bear a child. And she says, how could this be? I've never been with a man. And the angel responds, angel Gabriel responds and says what? The glory of, the God, glory of God will overshadow you. Same word. The glory of God will overshadow you. And you will be filled with the presence of God, and there, and that is how you will 
conceive this child. Very significant. And so we find this same cloud that represents God's palpable presence first over a tabernacle, then over a temple, then over the Virgin Mary. Now it falls over a mountain and addresses one particular person. This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. The biblical authors could go to no greater lengths to tell you and me that something really substantial is happening right here on that mountain. That the glory of God, uh, the splendor of Jesus Christ is being revealed. His supernatural glory, his supernatural majesty. It's one of those images that wouldn't you love to be there? I find it a little difficult to even envision in my mind's eye what it must have looked like. Shining clothes, a cloud, a voice. I think the author, J.R. Tolkien, uh, can help us visualize, perhaps, what they saw. You may know that J.R. Tolkien was a very serious and committed Christian. He and his friend C.S. Lewis would trade documents back and forth, and Tolkien's faith wove its way, sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly, into his writings. And there's one scene in his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, that reminds me of what we saw, what we've been considering here, and helps me visualize what may have happened. Let me set the scene through J.R. Tolkien's uh, work. Uh, the one hero, his name is Gandalf, he is thought to be dead. It's kind of a low point of the journey. And there's three travelers, one of whom named Aragorn. And they're lost, they're wandering, they can't figure out which way to go. They've been separated by their friends. Uh, nothing is going right. They're lost in a forest. And through the trees, they see what looks like an old man covered in a gray cloak who is trailing them. Now they're at first frightened, not knowing they're in enemy territory, so they think, huh, bad guy. And so here we pick it up. Aragorn, who's one of the three travelers, looked and beheld a bent figure moving slowly, not far away. He looked like an old beggar man, walking wearily, leaning on a rough staff. They could not see his face. For he was hooded, and above the hood he wore a wide-brimmed hat so you could only see the end of his nose and a long gray beard. They stood silent, each feeling a strange sort of expectancy. The scene continues and tension builds because they don't know who this unknown traveler is. They only sense that there's something hidden about him. The drama unfolds. They ask for the beggar man's uh, name, and he says, My name? Have you not guessed it by now? He broke off, laughing long and soft. And Aragorn felt a shudder run through him at the sound of the laughter, like a strange, cold thrill, like the sudden bite of crisp air or the slap of cold rain waking someone from an uneasy sleep. Story continues, and suddenly the old man sprang to his feet, leapt on top of a large rock. There he stood, grown suddenly tall, 
towering above him. His hood and his gray rags were flung away. His garments shone. He lifted up his staff. They finally recognized him. Gandalf, Gandalf, they cry. They all gazed at him. His hair was white as snow in the sunshine and gleaming white were his robes. And his eyes under his deep brows were bright and piercing as the rays of the sun. Power was in his hand between wonder, joy, and fear. They stood and had no words. Isn't that great? It helps me, at least in my mind's eye, visualize what they saw there. The glory revealed for just a moment, just a passing moment. They saw his glory revealed. Jesus must have normally worn ragged clothes covered with dust. But for just a moment, those ragged clothes were flung by the side and his, his, uh, his garments shown. Jesus' company was, was just as ragtag as his clothing. Uneducated fishermen and a few societal outcasts, but now for just a moment they see Jesus with the company that is more fitting, two pillars of the Old Testament. They see Jesus covered by the glory of God and the voice of God affirming him as the beloved son. They see the majesty the splendor of Jesus. Actually, uh, this one of the witnesses of these events is uh, Peter. And he wrote in 2 Peter, this is included in some sermon notes that you will find. He reflects back on this one event and he says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. They saw him in his glory, not a little babe who slept in Bethlehem, not the healer, healer or teacher who waded through the crowds. Not the suffering servant in agony on the cross. They saw him in his glory. Listen to what the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon writes. They saw him not in his peasant's garb, but with the empire of the universe upon his shoulders. No longer the man of sorrows, but Christ the man of God, Radiant with splendor, clothed with rainbows, wrapped in light, crowned with stars, the sun beneath his feet. They saw his majesty, they saw his glory. So that's our first question. What did they see? That's what they saw. Our second question. Second question is so what? Why does it matter? This is the last day before the season of Lent, the last Sunday. This Wednesday will begin Ash Wednesday, and we will begin what's called the Great 40 Days, in which we pick up our cross and walk with Jesus in his passion. And there's a beautiful little prayer that we say every time, every, every day around this time of year. You may want to turn to it because that's going to guide our reflections on the so what. And in this prayer we say this. O God, who before the passion of your Son revealed his glory upon the mountain, grant to us, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, we may be strengthened to bear our cross and changed into his likeness from glory to glory. There's three implications for what happened then. Number one is that we can behold by faith what they saw by sight. Do you follow along in that prayer? Grant to us that we behold by faith the light of his countenance. They saw it with their sight. However, we can see it through faith. 
The same thing is reflected by 2 Peter, that passage I reference. He writes that we have the sure prophetic word, and you will do well to pay attention to this. This is again in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. This is recorded for you, printed in your sermon notes. He writes that we have the sure prophetic word, and you will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star rises. Where? In your heart. In your heart. You hold on to what I saw. You hold on to my reliable testimony of what I witnessed on that mountain. And one day there will be a bright morning star rising right here. What they beheld by faith, we can behold by sight. How? We'll come back to that. Let's look at some implications. If we behold by faith what they saw by sight, what will happen? Two things this prayer suggests, and I think they're very accurate. Number one, we will be strengthened to carry our cross. Grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross. Jennifer, my wife, visited a friend this week who was very sick and dying. She spent about an hour with this friend. Uh, This friend was lapsing in and out of consciousness. Uh, And at one point, as Jennifer sat with her, this woman sat up in her chair and said, I have been working so hard. And she fell back. Jennifer related that story to me, and it touched me. I've been working so hard. And I wondered what she may have been thinking about. Maybe she was thinking about the past weeks, months, years of walking through this sickness and having her body slowly slow down. Maybe she thought of that and said, I have been working so hard. Maybe as she lapsed in and out of consciousness, she was thinking about some difficult season of life. And that prompted her to say, I have been working so hard. Or maybe she was just thinking about life from start to finish and said, I have been working so hard hard. Crosses come in any shape, any size, and any form. Certainly that cross is one of the more significant ones that anyone will bear. But we all carry our crosses, and they are, are all require our hard work. I think of some of you who have been uh, just given the one-two punch by this flu bug with one child getting sick and then another child getting sick and then the parents getting sick and then the parents passing it back to the children and just one unendless cycle of sickness. And that is a cross to bear, one of many. I have mine, you have yours. And I imagine that all of us at some point in time have said or have wanted to say what that woman said. I have been working so hard. One of the untapped resources that we have to bear the crosses that we all encounter is the sight of Jesus Christ in his glory. No longer Christ the man of sorrows, 
but Christ the man of God. Radiant with splendor, clothed with rainbows, wrapped in light, crowned with stars, the sun beneath his feet. Recall that story from J.R. Tolkien. Recall how Aragorn felt when he had a sense that he was talking to someone with a hidden power. He writes, Aragorn felt a shudder run through him, a strange, cold thrill, yet not fear. Rather, it was like the sudden bite of crisp air or the slap of cold rain that wakes someone from an uneasy slumber. And he was strengthened for the journey ahead. The same is true for us. That when we, with eyes of faith, see what they saw, we are strengthened to bear the crosses that we all encounter. Grant to us that we may behold by faith, be strengthened to bear our crosses. Lastly, that we may be changed into the likeness of his glory. How do you and I grow into the likeness of Christ? How do we mature to be more like him? To grow to be like Christ, we must have a clear vision of who he is. If only the veil could be taken off of our eyes, and we could see him as he is in the fullness of his divine human person, the scope of his saving work, clothed in light, if only we with eyes of faith could see what they saw. Then we would give him the honor that is due his name, and we would grow into maturity. So let me summarize for us. What did they saw? What did they see? They saw Jesus in his supernatural splendor, clothed in light, surrounded by a glorious company, covered by the glory of God. Why does it matter what they saw? Because you and I can see through faith what they saw by sight. They saw the dazzling sun. We can see the morning star. And when we say what they saw, we're strengthened to bear our crosses. And when we see what they saw, we are changed into the likeness of his glory. And so the discerning listener will have one important question that's still lingering out there, and that question is, okay, well, how do I see what they saw? And I don't know the full answer to that question, but I know how that answer begins. And that answer begins by asking, by saying what we read in this prayer, grants, O Lord, that I may behold by faith the light of his countenance. Give me eyes to see in my heart and my soul what I cannot see with my own given sight. There's a singer and songwriter who wrote a, a simple hymn, and that is going to be how we conclude our service. Michael W. Smith wrote this song entitled, Open the Eyes of My Heart. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. I want to see you shining in the light of your glory. As you pour out your power and grace, we sing holy, holy, holy. I'd like us to 
offer this song as a, a prayer, as we open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus as they saw him. <laughs>